Good morning. My name's Jody Kiesler, and I'm the children's director here at Victory Life Church, for those of you who don't know me. Uh, we are very glad that you are all joining us here this morning, have braved this very chilly, very chilly morning, too chilly. Um, and we are glad that you are joining us here. If you are joining us online, we're glad that you are hopefully cozied and warm somewhere and joining us online. There's a tab online you can click on our website, vlchurch.com, and fill out um, some new visitor information if you would like to do that. And if you are a, a first-time visitor or if you are joining us and you would like us to know more about you, if you would like to join us in this journey of faith that we are all in, there's a card on the back of the seat in front of you. Grab that and fill it out. Um, we would like to be able to be in contact with you throughout this week to get to know you a little bit better. And for our regular attenders, we are so glad that you are here, that you um, bring with you the maturity and the faith that builds our church together. Thank you for being a part of this place called Victory Life Church. Um, and in that, if you would like to give back in out of all that God has given you with tithes and offerings, you can do that three different ways. You can text to give. You can go online at vlchurch.com to give, or you can give it to an usher on the way out. And we are so thankful that because of all of us, this church can be a place where many can come and join in God's story. That's a wonderful thing for all of us to be a part of. Well, it is a chilly morning, and I think we all know that spring is trying to peek out from around the corner. It's trying to take hold. We're hoping that it does very soon. You see the buds on the trees and all the daffodils starting to crawl up out of the ground. Um, and we are, uh, along with that, planning some work days for church. Uh, there are things to be done around the property. There are um, things to be cleaned and things to be addressed outside. And this April 1st and April 22nd, we will be having a work day at church. And I don't want you to think about it like a work day. It is a time to get to know each other because when our hands are busy, our minds are available, right? And we can make friends. We can get to know each other. I have great memories of just down this hallway painting um, baseboards with many good friends that I just met for the first time. Uh, and it's a wonderful time to really, really fellowship together as our hands are productive for God's kingdom. So if you would like to sign up for that, you can do it two ways. You can go onto the website and sign up if you click the banner on the website for the workday, or you can go out in the hallway. Our trustee, Nathan Flaker, will be out there, and he has a sign-up and probably will be able to answer a lot of your questions. Our hope in spring is not based on the flowers that bloom and then fade, the cherry trees that blossom and then fall. Our hope in spring is based on the redemptive work that Jesus did, that sacrifice that he made for us that we get to celebrate in this season. And with that is our Good Friday service. So Friday, April 7th at 3 p.m., we will get to join together as a family and remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for us that debt that he paid that was ours to owe, that he took on himself. And this is a time of remembrance and reflection, and it is wonderful to do this with others, to know that we are joining together to honor and remember the act that Jesus did for us in his death on the cross. 
And so we really hope that you would join us in this room, April 7th at 3 p.m. for this Good Friday service. And then we hope you join us Easter morning, which is Sunday, April 9th. We have two services, the 9.30 and the 11 o'clock service, because we want to celebrate with you. This is our time to celebrate the best gift, the best hope, the best freedom that we have in Jesus' resurrection. And we hope that you come, bring your neighbors, bring your friends. This is the holiday, right? This is the pinnacle of what we have, and we are so glad to be able to celebrate this with all of you. And we are prepared and ready to uh, do this celebration with all of you on Easter Sunday. So we are looking forward to doing that. Okay, uh, would you stand with me as we get ourselves ready for worship? <clears throat> Dear Jesus, we do thank you that you made and created a beautiful world. But we thank you that you did more than just create this world, that you redeemed us, that you interacted with us here on earth to give us something that we could never have given ourselves. And we thank you that that brings us hope eternal that we can only find in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's worship him today.
save us, Lord, and we need his salvation day after day after day. We thank you, Lord, that we are saved and are continuing to be saved. This song is in preparation for Palm Sunday because on Palm Sunday, they ushered in Jesus in to Jerusalem singing Hosanna. It's okay to use a Christian word like Hosanna in church. It's okay to shout it because we do need the Savior. We do need him, and we thank him for saving us. There is no sweeter name in the name of Jesus. Let's continue to worship him this morning.
able to sing the name of Jesus this morning and talk about how sweet that is because of what he did on the cross for us. And that is the sweetest gift we ever could have received. And so let's just take a moment this morning to reflect back on what Jesus did on the cross for us and lift him up in praise and worship.
Jesus. Here my hope is found here on holy ground. Here I bow down. Here I bow down. Here arms open wide. Here you saved my life. Every single one of us has surrendered to something today. Every single one of us has a master. But the Lord Jesus reminded us that we cannot serve two masters. We'll either be devoted to the one and despise the other or vice versa. What a good thing for the people of God to remind themselves that the only symbol before which we kneel the only Lord that is worthy of our faith and fidelity is the Lord Jesus. Have you reminded yourself of that today? Have you availed yourself of this opportunity to remind yourself that the almighty dollar is not your master? That whatever is before you in a can or a bottle is not your master? That the American dream and giving your kids the things that you didn't have is not your master? that that relationship that you aspire to, it is not your Savior, your Master, but the Lord Jesus is. Have you availed yourself today of reminding yourself just where your faith and fidelity should lay?
for only one person died for your sins. Only one person has the power to bring you from darkness to light. Only one person is deserving of your fidelity today. Have you availed yourself? Have you reminded yourself? He purchased something for you on the cross that you could not purchase and gave to you something in his arrival here that you needed desperately. With just the voices, let's remind ourselves one more time just who is deserving, just who is worthy. At the cross, at the cross, I surrender my life. I'm in awe of you. I'm in awe of you. Where your love ran red and my sin washed white, I owe all to you. I owe all to you. May it be so. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Well, welcome once again to Victory Life Church this morning. I'm Pastor Matt. It's my great pleasure to get to share the word with you today. And before you young disciples uh, leave this place, I want to convey something that you'll be hearing down the hall. Later on this year, January 1st, we as a church will be sending out a missionary team to Jalisco, Mexico, which happens to be the black tar heroin capital of the world, a place where we have helped to found and build a church of Jesus Christ that is winning souls and pulling people out of a life of bondage. It's a powerful, powerful thing that we've had an opportunity to do as a church in Jalisco, and we have been set down teams almost every other year for over a decade. Well, that's going to change this year. We're sending down a team every year, because last year we sent down a team, and this year we're going to have the opportunity to send down a team. Well, there's opportunity for you to partner, and there's a reason for you to partner with us in this. Usually, when we send a team every other year, we're able to accrue funds through our missions committee. Every time you give your tithes and your offerings, we put some of that money aside for missions. Well, we don't have as much time to accrue money to send this team as in a normal year. And so we want to ask you if you will prayerfully consider helping to send this team down by sponsoring individual members of the team, since we don't have the normal time we have to accrue all that money. The other thing that makes it tough is usually when we send a team... Folks will send out support letters, and that will be the majority of their funding. So they send it out to their cousins and their aunts and their uncles and their former work associates, friends that they know are Christians. But this particular year, almost every, if not every, person on, in the group is going with a family member. They're either a, a youth that's going with their parent or a youth that's going with their grandparent. Well, in that case, they all have the same relatives. They all have the same people to send out support letters to. It makes it harder for them to acquire the funds to go on the trip. And so when we were asking uh, the Lord, is this, a, is this a wise thing for us to do? We're like, of course, it's always wise to partner in short-term missions to win people to Christ and to build God's church in areas of the world that could use our support. And that's what we do. We don't send missions teams uh, just to do things. We send missions teams to accomplish work for Christ. And so we want to invite you to prayerfully consider, if you're going to give one offering this year that's over and above your normal tithes and offerings, we want you to give to this. 
We want you to continue to allow Victory Life Church to shine their light in the world, and we want you to support this team that's going down to Mexico. So in the lobby today, we have pictures and we have uh, bios of everybody who's going on the team, and we're going to ask you to stop by and say hello to those people, take a look at the people that are going on the trip and saying, God, which one of these pictures is for me? All right, now, now don't, if somebody's frowning, don't automatically, you know, in their picture, don't automatically say that you're not going to help them, but, but ask God, who, who would you help me partner with to send to Mexico, or if you're like, you know what, I don't have an individual, but I, I can give towards this today, and I'm not going to feel it in my checkbook at all, you can right now go to our text to give or our website and denote our missions trip that's going out this summer. You just pull in the drop-down menu, and you can support them in a general way and just say, we're going to get these people on this trip. Or, of course, you can always put it in an offering envelope, market missions, and please market Mexico team. And that way we know to, to divert the funds in that direction. Does all that make sense? And so we hope that you'll partner with our Mexico missions trip. We are so absolutely thrilled that we get to send another team down this summer, and we'll get to hear all the great things that God's going to do through them. Kids, you're going to have an opportunity to partner with us as well. Miss Jody's going to tell you all about that. And now you may be dismissed for young disciples. All right. If you're new here today, our Young Disciples program runs until the end of service. They're going to be down in our South Sanctuary. You're welcome to go down the hall with them to get them settled in, and you can pick them up after service expeditiously. All right. Get your Bibles this morning. Turn with, you're not going to believe this, turn with us, please, to Acts chapter 26. Today we are going to begin our first talk on the fourth and final missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. We have been working our way through highlights of this Into the World series, and we have been talking about lessons that we can learn from Paul as it relates to trying to tell people about Jesus, to trying to share the gospel, to trying to be a light in this dark world. And we're going to find Paul in very unique circumstances in Acts chapter 26 at the beginning of his fourth missionary journey. When I was a kid and I'd be in school, there was one day that I hated. I really didn't like it, and no, it wasn't standardized testing day. I actually enjoyed that because I... I, I didn't have to listen to anybody, but, but it, was, it was that day where they said, what do your parents do? I didn't like that day. Now, my mom was a homemaker, and that was no big deal. A lot of the moms were homemakers, but, but my dad was a pastor, and I had some level of embarrassment associated with that. Don't you start seeing I had a level of embarrassment <laughs> that, 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 that was associated with that, and not, not necessarily because I was embarrassed of my dad. I certainly wasn't. But there was a lot to explain and convey as to what it meant to be a pastor. Like the other kids could say, my dad's a fireman, or my dad's in construction, or, or my dad uh, works in a business. But when you say your dad's a pastor, that's like, what? And I get these questions sometimes. Like People would be like, well, what does he do? And, and that's a lot to explain. Well, he disciples people. How are you going to explain that to a nine-year-old, Right? Well, he preaches. What is preaching? How are you going to explain that to a nine-year-old? Well, well, he counsels people. I guess that's a little bit easier. He has a trustee and an elder and a benevolence and a, and a, and a missions board and committee. Yeah, and there's a lot to explain there. And for some reason, I was thinking back on it. Why was I embarrassed to try to convey this? Well, I think on some level, anything having to do with the church or the gospel or God, the enemy likes to get into our spirit and say, be embarrassed at that. That's not normal. People won't understand but I think as I look back on that, I think there was a little bit of the idea that, well, if I have to explain it, it's weird. 
If I have to take time to explain it, it's off, or it's off-putting, or it's strange, or it's not reasonable. No, I wasn't thinking that in the moment. I was just feeling the embarrassment. But as I look back, I thought, if I have to talk to try to explain what discipling a person is, maybe that's weird and nobody will understand. And so I didn't want to convey what my dad did. Now, years and years later, I've had time to think about it. And if I had been thinking in a gospel-oriented mindset, I would have used those opportunities to talk about how great church was and how cool it was that he was a pastor. Take note, Sienna. But you're just the one that happens to be in this service. I'm sorry, I'll do it to Natalie next service. But anyhow, I would have done that. I would have, I would have used that opportunity to, to account for what my father did and explain, but use it as an opportunity to hold up Jesus and his church as opposed to be embarrassed about it. You know, the Apostle Peter wrote some interesting words. I know we're talking about Paul in this series, but he wrote some interesting words that really fit our passage today. He said in 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, verse 14 and 15, that we should set apart Christ or sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts, and that we should always be ready to make a defense to anybody who demands from us an accounting, an accounting, for the hope that is in us. So when the opportunity comes that you don't necessarily have planned to share about Jesus or his church or or the gospel, we should be able not only to defend our beliefs, but to give an accounting, list by list, line by line, of what we believe and what's important to us. And we're going to see the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 26, not in a place that he had planned to share the gospel. In fact, The fourth missionary journey begins under duress. Paul is in the protective custody of the Roman government. And eventually he's going to get shipped across the Mediterranean Sea to Rome, a place that he'd hoped to go, but probably had not hoped to go there in chains. When we pick up in Acts chapter 26, Paul is going to be defending and explaining his gospel in chains, both to the Roman governor, Porcius, that's all folks, Festus, and King Agrippa. The last of the line of Herods. Remember Herod the Great killed all the babies, Herod Antipas cut off John the Baptist's head. Herod and all of these Herods. The last of the Herods is a man named King Agrippa. And Paul is going to be making his defense not only of himself, why am I in chains today, but he's going to take this opportunity to highlight Jesus and the gospel before he gets shipped off to Rome. And that's where we're going to pick up the story today because Paul was ready in his heart to set apart Jesus as Lord, to sanctify him as Lord, to give a defense for the hope that was in him when the day comes that an accounting is demanded of him. Now today as we go through this passage, I want to let you know that we're going to highlight the places where Paul defends the gospel, and we're not going to read all of chapter 26 and highlight the places that Paul's defending himself. Because there's two things going on. One, Paul's defending the gospel. He's making an accounting for the hope that he has. And two, he's trying to say there's no reason I should be in prison, but I guess it's all right because I'm going to head to Rome anyhow, and that's kind of what's going on in the other category. Okay, But I want us to highlight today the reasonable hope that Paul has. Because just because you have to explain something doesn't mean that it's not reasonable. In fact, some of the most important truths have to be explained, and they are reasonable. And Paul's going to make a defense of the gospel here that I hope will speak to you and I, that the next time we're put in a position where we don't necessarily want to highlight Christ or his church or the beauty and truth of the gospel, that we'll be prepared anyhow, ready to make our accounting so that someone may just come to faith. Let's start in on chapter 26. We are in Caesarea 
that is in Israel. So Paul's not quite started the missionary journey, but he's about to get sent off to Rome after this audience with Porcius Festus, the governor of Rome, and of course, King Agrippa, one of the last of the Herods, or the last Herod. Verse 1 of chapter 26, So Agrippa the king said to Paul, who was in chains, You have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. Paul said, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you today, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all of the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from my beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time. If they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope, my hope, in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes of Israel hope to attain as they earnestly worship day and night. And it is for this hope that I'm accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? This is the beginning of Paul's defense. Verse 8 is so instructive. He highlights as his hope the resurrection of the dead. That's the hope that Paul has. He says, the same hope that I have, the reason for my being on earth and my hope for eternity is the same reason I'm being put on trial today. See, Paul takes these two opportunities to say, one, I'm on trial on bogus charges, but two, the truth is, I'm on trial because Jesus was raised from the dead. In fact, human beings are raised from the dead. It's the very center of our gospel. Now, we have a cross behind us today, and if you were to ask most Christians, what is the center of the gospel, they would say, the cross. Now, I'm not here to challenge that today, but as you read the book of Acts and the sermons in the book of Acts, it's very clear that the early church, the center of their gospel was an empty tomb. And as I've mentioned before, an empty tomb is just harder to wear on a necklace around your neck, you know, so you do a cross instead, and that's why the cross is, I'm kidding, that's not why the cross is the center of the gospel today. But, but for those who have been raised in church, who realize their need for a Savior, realize their need for forgiveness of sins that comes from outside of their selves, the cross is the center of salvation. But for Paul in the early church, the reason that any of what was expected of the Jewish Messiah could be true is because Jesus was raised from the dead. And because of the hope of the resurrection, that because Jesus was raised, you will be raised as well. So Paul is taking this opportunity to defend himself, but he's really not so concerned with his own defense. He's in front of a king, and he's in front of a governor. He's going to preach the gospel. And he says to them, why would you think it unreasonable that God raises the dead? Why would that be thought incredible to any of you? that God raises the dead. See, Paul's going to go ahead and say, the resurrection is reasonable. The resurrection is reasonable. That's my hope. He's not embarrassed to try to explain the resurrection. He's not thinking, well, if I have to explain it, then it can't be reasonable. No, Paul is very clear. The resurrection is absolutely reasonable. In fact, he highlights the fact that he was a Pharisee because he knows what Agrippa knows, that the Pharisees had always expected that God was going to raise people from the dead. 
And he said, this is based in the hope that our forefathers were given. In essence, all of the promises of the Old Testament can't come true to people who have been annihilated. All of the promises of the Old Testament can't come true to people who have ceased to exist. All of the promises and the scriptures of the Old Testament cannot come true for people who don't have a body. And therefore, the Pharisees for hundreds of years had taught, of course there's going to be a resurrection of the body. Of course God's going to redeem all of us. Of course God's going to make this possible. So Paul is saying to Agrippa, who understands these controversies and understands these questions, and says, I'm a Pharisee. God's going to raise the dead. Why should, that, why should I be on trial for that? That's silly. That's what he says to Agrippa. Now, he is really on trial for this in many ways. See, there were people in Jerusalem at the exact same time that was preaching that Jesus was the Messiah. But Paul was preaching a couple of extra things. Paul wasn't preaching extra in terms of the hope that Jesus had brought about because of the resurrection. The extra thing that Paul was preaching was that Jesus was the Messiah and Jesus came to save the Gentiles too. That's what made him so stinky and onerous in the eyes of those leaders in Jerusalem, the same people who generations earlier had killed Jesus. And so the people who put Paul on trial, they did so because of his preaching of the resurrection, because they weren't Pharisees. They weren't Pharisees. They were Sadducees. The leaders of the church in Jerusalem, or not the church in Jerusalem, the temple in Jerusalem, not Christians, but Jews who had not become Christians, were not Pharisees at all. They were Sadducees, and therefore, they didn't want Paul preaching the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and they certainly didn't want him preaching to Gentiles because they didn't believe in a resurrection. So the chief priests, the, the, the leaders of the temple, want Paul to stay in prison, want Paul to die, because he's preaching Jesus, he's preaching the resurrection, he's preaching it to Gentiles. And so they're the ones who are working to make sure Paul doesn't get set free. They were Sadducees. They weren't Pharisees. Sadducees had no expectation of a resurrection, no expectation of eternal life. Therefore, they were sad, you see, and you'll remember that forever now. So he appeals to Agrippa and says, I am a Pharisee. We've always believed in the resurrection, and of course we know what he's going to get to. It shouldn't be incredible to you that God's, God's going to raise us from the dead because he's already given us proof positive that he raises people from the dead. But he's not quite there yet. Interestingly enough, Paul says the resurrection is reasonable to any of you because they're not all Jews there. A lot of them are Romans. He's explaining himself. He's saying it's perfectly rational to consider that God would raise us from the dead. He says to any of you, to Porcius Festus, to all the Romans in the room, why should it be thought incredible that God would resurrect us one day. If God can spin out the universe, and God can create us from the dust of the ground, write our DNA, breathe life into us, why should it be thought incredible that at the end of time he will do it once more? Not in a body that will be given to decay and corruption and death, but in a body that was meant to inherit eternal life. Why should that be crazy to you? For any of you creationists out there, why wouldn't we assume that we human beings created in the image of God would cease to be human. Of course we're not going to cease to be human. We're going to be more human. We're going to be better humans than we've ever been. This is the appeal of Christianity. When we're here on, uh, on April 9th celebrating Easter, we're going to sing songs about how Jesus raised from the dead and will be raised as well. That's exciting. I don't want to be Wiley e. Coyote playing a harp on a cloud. 
I don't want to be Elmer Fudd becoming an angel because Bugs Bunny has brought about my demise. That's not Christianity. Christianity says that God is going to redeem all of you, soul, spirit, and body, and you are going to experience eternity in the presence of God in a body. You're not going to cease to be human. I like my fingers and toes. I'll keep them. Thank you very much. This is the hope of Christianity. We're not going to be annihilated. We're we're not going to become a a spirit on a cloud. We're not going to to get to the place where, where, where we're an angel. No. We get to experience a new heaven and a new earth in glorified bodies that don't experience decay, don't experience corruption, don't experience death and are not marred by the effects of sin. God's going to redeem all of us. Why should that be be thought incredible by any of you? If he's truly God, and he's truly worked to save us, he's going to save all of us. This is the hope of the gospel that Paul is making a defense for, both to those who would have expected a Messiah and those who have no idea what a Messiah is. You can make the appeal either way. Just look at somebody and say, Do you want to spend eternity as a wisp? Or do you want to spend eternity as a human, as you've always been? Now, if you want to spend eternity as a wisp, you're weird. You are. This was created by God in his image. And there's something in us that wants this to be eternal, yet we know it is not. And therefore, God's got to do something to intervene on our behalf, and he will. If he can form you out of the dust of the ground once, he can do it again. So there's all your questions, right? What about those who were buried at sea, those who were cremated? All of it. If he can do it once, he can do it again. And he's going to redeem every bit of you. This is Paul's hope. This is the center of the gospel. And now he's going to explain to Agrippa and Festus, make an accounting. He's going to go line by line of what that resurrection accomplished. Skip down to verse 18 with me. He's going to make an accounting. He's going to explain. Did you notice he told Agrippa to wait patiently? I'm going to start all my sermons like that from now on. Would you listen patiently as I begin to expound? That's what he says to Agrippa. If I'm going to explain why I'm here and what this is all about, you're going to have to listen for just a half a second. Thank you very much. Verse 18, he has already explained how he came to be a Christian. Now he explains his call from Jesus. Jesus told Paul that he was going to, verse 18, help to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So, the hope of the gospel is the hope of resurrection. The accomplishments of Christ are highlighted here. Four reasonable accomplishments of the resurrection The first reasonable accomplishment of the resurrection is that Jesus is going to help lead people out of darkness and into light. Who does that sound like? It's a trick question. It sounds like John. It sounds like Mark. It sounds like Matthew. It sounds like Peter. It sounds like Paul. It sounds like John. It sounds like all of them. All of them pick up this motif that Jesus is uniquely able to bring us out of this darkened state of mind, this purposelessness that we have without God, and enlighten us as to why we are here, why God exists, why we were created, what happens in eternity, and what happens until we get there. That our darkened minds will be enlightened. That that the caveman and cavewoman in each one of us that just goes about 
doing what we need to do and getting what we need to get and pursuing our desires and our needs and our wants, that is not the height of humanity. The height of humanity is to understand God and his call upon our lives. And Jesus is uniquely positioned because he's the only one to raise from the dead. He's uniquely positioned to bring you out of darkness and into light. He can tell you what your life is about. He can illuminate what this whole thing is about. He can tell you who you are and where you fit in his grand plan. You are not, ladies and gentlemen, just technologically advanced cavemen or or, or highly developed amoebas. God has light to shed on this mind of yours that was made for eternity so that you can know exactly who he is and what he calls you to do. Jesus can bring you from darkness to light. In the words of the immortal poet Switchfoot, we were made to live for so much more. Thank you for all of you children of the early 2000s. We have so much. The best poets are, of course, the the, the modern songwriters. But anyhow, we we know this. We know that we are meant to live for more. We know that there's more than our darkened minds can comprehend. Jesus can take you from darkness to light. He's uniquely positioned to do so as the first one to raise from the dead. We also find out here a a second reasonable accomplishment of the resurrection, that he can move you from the power of Satan to God. That, That you are not a free agent before Christ. You are not somebody who just has uh, nothing going on in you. You're not, you're not a, a blank slate, as one of the philosophers said. You're not a blank slate. You are under the power of Satan. You say, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know that I felt under that power. Well, you're under the power of Satan in two very specific ways. One, you live in a world that's defective. It's marred by sin. And from the earliest age, people under the power of Satan were doing wrong against you wrong against you, and you had to live with that, you had to deal with that, you had to cope with that. You had to experience the power of Satan through other people. And many of us, the biggest hurts and the biggest hang-ups and the biggest problems that we have faced are because of the power of Satan displayed against us. And in Christ, we are not under that power anymore. Jesus can heal us from all that crud. He can move us out from under the power of Satan And for those of us who are real with ourselves, for those of us who recognize that we truly were unable to control our impulses and our ways and our darkness, recognize that on a personal level we were under the power of Satan too. We needed a savior to make it possible for us to come out of darkness and into light. We needed somebody to bring us into the power of God and give us a power that was not our own, that we could overcome those things that were unable to be overcome prior to Christ. That's a second reasonable accomplishment of the resurrection. Of course, he says that people can receive forgiveness. And of course, that's the center of our American Christian gospel. I'm not mocking it. I'm not making fun of it. I'm not putting it down in any way. But we understand that Jesus, as the sacrifice for sin, the one who did humanity perfectly in a way that we could not do humanity, he has the right to offer us the forgiveness from God because he paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. And therefore, if Jesus just dies on the cross and doesn't rise again, Paul said we are, we are miserable, we are wretched people, we have no hope. But if Jesus dies on the cross for our sins and rises again, he's the one that can offer us forgiveness. And finally, one that appeals to the human mind, to the human heart, the fourth element of these reasonable appeals from the resurrection is that God gives us a place. a place of belonging among those who are sanctified, those who are made holy. When Jesus forgives you, you are made part of God's family. You belong there forever. 
and that appeals to so many. I would tell you that if I were explaining Jesus and I just had, a, had to have a go-to passage to explain Jesus and what he did to people, I'd go to the beginning of John. And I'd say to as many as who received him and who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's what Jesus did. He gave us a place in God's family. Paul says, if the resurrection of the dead is possible and Jesus did what he did, then these are the reasonable things that happened because of the resurrection. Number one, Jesus was uniquely able to move us from darkness to light. Jesus was uniquely able to overcome the power of Satan because he's the only one who did. Jesus helps us to overcome the power of Satan and move us to God. Jesus forgives us of that which we have done wrong, making it possible to come into the presence of God. And finally, Jesus gives us a place in the presence of God as the firstborn among many who have been raised from the dead. These, this is our basic theology. Are you seeing what Paul's doing here? Now, is that easy to explain? Does that take some time? Did Pastor Matt have to think about it at his beautiful oak desk? Yeah. I had to think through these things. I had to think about how I was going to present them to you. I had to think about how I was going to do it in 30 minutes. I needed an hour. But time is always our enemy. And you guys start fidgeting at the hour mark. Some of you zip up your Bible loudly to say, you're done. I know. We have an hour. We've got to go quickly. We've got to go quickly. So it's not easy. It takes some splaining, as Ricky Ricardo would say. It takes some splaining. But, but we can, and we ought to. And it's perfectly reasonable. If we start with the very general principle, human beings don't want to die. And then we move one step further to say, human beings don't want to die. Not spirits, not souls. All of us don't want to die. We want to live forever. We want to die. No, never. God has placed eternity in our hearts. And the idea that, that God's not just going to redeem some of us, but going to redeem all of us. And then to explain how Jesus makes that possible through his resurrection by being the only human who's ever done it the way humans were meant to do it. And also made it possible for our sins to be erased. It, it is reasonable. It does make sense it just takes time, but it should not cause us embarrassment. We're going to move a little bit further. We have five minutes before our Bible zips, so here we go. Verse 22. To this day I have had help that comes from God, says Paul, as he defends himself before Festus and Agrippa. And so I stand here testifying, both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ, or the Messiah, Savior, I guess, if you're a Gentile, must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Paul says this was the reasonable work of the Messiah, of the Christ. This is what was expected by the prophets. From Malachi to Moses, from Abraham to Isaiah, we need a Savior Someone who's going to intervene in human history and save this race from our march towards eternal death. The Messiah must suffer means that the, the, the Savior had to come like us to deliver us from what ails us. The Savior had to experience the hard things in life the way we experience the hard things in life, or he's not truly our Savior. He's just God pretending to be like us. But he didn't pretend to be like us. Read Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 and following. He was us, except he did it right. When he suffered, he turned his attention to God. When he was tempted, he overcame. 
And ultimately, he did what none of us could do, make himself obedient even to death, death on a cross. I'll even die if that is the righteous requirement of God, things that we won't do. He did it perfectly. The Messiah must suffer, and he must be the first to rise from the dead because someone has to save us from our worst enemy. That's death. And as the sinless, sinless, sinless human, he could overcome death. And therefore, just as Isaiah said, he is the Savior, not just of Jewish people, but of the Gentiles as well, of everyone. Paul has made his full and reasonable defense of the gospel before Agrippa and before Festus. And I just want to show you the incredible, astounding results of this full and reasonable defense. Verse 24. And as he was saying these things, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Did you catch my sarcasm? I said the incredible results. Did you get? Paul, you're out of your mind. But Paul said, I- I'm not out of my mind. Most I-, I skipped a part. Let me go back. Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning. Did you hear that? Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I- I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For, the, for I am persuaded that none of the things that I speak of have escaped his notice, for none of this has been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. The two-year imprisoned, shackled prisoner says, I've got it better than any of you. Because I know the one who raised from the dead. The man who is standing there in humility and imprisonment says, I wish that everybody standing here was like me, except this stinks. All of you. I didn't didn't share my thoughts with you to prove myself smart. I didn't make a defense and explain the gospel so that you could think I was brilliant. I did all of this because I saw this as an opportunity to make an audacious invitation to everybody in this room. I didn't use my personal embarrassment as these chains as an excuse not to audaciously invite you into the kingdom of Christ Jesus, who has died for our sins and been raised to life to give us eternity. That's what Paul does. That's what's so incredible. He he doesn't get embarrassed. He, He doesn't get worried that if it takes him a while to explain, it's not rational. He goes, I'm perfectly rationable. Rationable, yeah. Don't say rationable. Yeah. Because if you do say rationable, then you have to get people baptized, and it really gets confusing. But he's, I'm perfectly rational, Festus. Everything I've said follows one from another. So let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a few. How long have you been a Christian? Can you make a reasonable appeal for your faith, can you? 
Can you? Are you prepared, as Peter encouraged you, to always be ready to give a defense for the hope that you have, being able to make an accounting for it? Can you do it? Are you ready? The next time that you would have an opportunity to highlight Christ, his gospel, or the church of Jesus Christ, are you ready to make your appeal? And that's why I ask, how long have you been a Christian? If you've been a Christian for five minutes, it's going to take a little time. But if you've been a Christian for five years or 50 years, Peter says, you ought to be ready. You ought to be ready to say, I'm not out of my mind. All that followed, all that makes sense. Whether I'm arguing from general revelation, we all want to be resurrected, or whether I'm arguing from specific revelation of the Old Testament, Jesus fulfilled the prophets. I can talk intelligently about what I believe. Are you ready? Are you prepared? And for those of you who are prepared, for those of you who have read so many Christian books that, that, that your mind is overflowing, with the depth of the scriptures and the apologetics of the brilliant, do you make that audacious appeal when the opportunity comes? Or is it always that's the place that you stop? You know, I am in chains. I, I, don't, I can't pretend like I know it all. I don't, I don't want I don't, I don't to make them uncomfortable. So I can share what I believe, but I'm, I, I don't know that I'd, you know... Invite him to pray with me to know Jesus or, or perhaps even more scary, invite them to church. I won't, I won't appeal, but I'll talk. I just won't appeal. We need both. We need both. The gospel does need explained, and people do need invited to participate in it. Festus and Agrippa, as far as we know, didn't accept the invitation. But in short order, as we have already learned and we'll learn in chapter 28 next week, many from Caesar's own household are going to bend their knee at the foot of the cross. It's not going to work every time, but we ought to make the appeal anyhow. Now, I'm not just going to tell you all this today and share all these things with you without wanting to resource you. So I have some books up here today that I'd like to give away. The first is 20 small chapters. They are, really are small. And it's just called Christian Beliefs. And if you've been a Christian for under five years or for just over five minutes, I would love for you, if you'll read it, to come get a copy of this today. It's on the house. It's called Christian Beliefs. It's an easy read. And it will help you give an accounting for that which you believe. Okay? So my only prerequisite is if you come and grab one, you don't even have to talk to me. I'm going to go to the portico and greet people and freeze my rear end off, so I won't even be looking at you when you take it, okay? But, but take one of these Christian beliefs. If you're new to this thing and you've gone through the basic elements of discipleship, you got baptized, you're going to get baptized, and, and you've been to growth tracks, so you can get a, a conceptual framework for what church is, grab one. But for those of you who have all the learning and for those of you who would say, you know what, I, I've been in church forever, and I know all these things that you said today, Pastor Matt. It's a very simple book called Turning Everyday Conversations into Gospel Conversations. And maybe your thing is you don't give the audacious invite 
because you felt like the explaining somehow embarrassed you. Well, Paul was in chains and wasn't embarrassed to give the invite to a king and a governor. You're not in chains today. And maybe God will allow you to turn an everyday conversation into an audacious invitation. I, w- I would love to tell the second service that we're out of these and that you're mean. Um, so please, feel free to come take one. But with that said, what's most important is what God's going to do in our hearts in prayer. And so if perhaps you have not taken very seriously the idea of defending your faith, let's pray and ask God that he would help you with that. And perhaps if you do have great learning, maybe you're not turning enough conversations into gospel conversations. And in that case, let's pray that God would help you to be audacious and make those invitations when the opportunity arises. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, this is such a good group of people. They want to honor you. They want to serve you. They, they want your light to shine through them. Lord, I know that. Lord, I also know that the enemy of our souls would have us operate in embarrassment, telling us we're not smart enough, not learned enough, or just perhaps we don't have the spiritual gusto to invite somebody to faith. Oh, Lord, I pray that you'd silence that voice among your flock today. I pray that you'd silence the voice of the enemy and your people that would tell them they can't and they shouldn't. I pray that those who feel a lack of confidence in explaining your gospel would do something about it. They wouldn't just say, God, make me confident, but they would read and learn and commit to being able to talk about your gospel rationally and intelligently. And I pray for those who have been steeped in the faith, who know the truth of the gospel and believe it with all their heart, that whatever chain they bear, whatever part of themselves can operate in an embarrassment or cause them to want to stand back in the shadows, I pray, Lord, that you would give them boldness and simple tools to speak about who you are and what you have done, for we should be proud of our Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. If you are able, will you stand? Lots to think about as you exit the building today. Um, If you do want one of these books, please come and take one. Just promise that you'll read it if you do. Get into it maybe tonight or tomorrow so that you don't neglect it. Uh, Secondly, we would love for you to stop by that missions table today and uh, look at some of those missionaries who are going away this summer and ask God, hey, how how could I help send them? And then finally, we'd love to uh, hang out with you on Saturday, August 1st or August 22nd. Do do some light work. Many hands make light work. And we'll get this place looking great for Easter. So if you want to sign up for the workday, we hope you do that too. Grab a cup of coffee. Grab a donut. Say hello. Don't forget your children. Bye.